Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Deputy Editor Josie Tutty. And joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is News Editor Paul Warbank. Hello. Senior Agencies Reporter Abigail Dawson. Hello. And Senior Media Reporter Zoe Samios. Hello. Plus, our guest this week is podcaster, radio host, founder of Pod School, and Mamma Mia's head of podcasts, Rachel Corbett. We'll be talking to Rachel about, you guessed it, podcasts, but more specifically, brands hopping on the podcast wagon. They just go, well, we just want a podcast, and that's not enough of a reason to do a podcast. Bad podcast ads. You've got somebody so intimately in your ears, and then some rando voice yeah. in a completely different accent starts yabbering on about something, and you're like, "What? where am I? Yeah. And why radio is not dead. We've been saying for ages, oh, radio's going to die, <laughs> Just you know, but it just keeps going. But first, this week's news... BuzzFeed redundancies hit Australia. We analyse 2019's reality TV offerings. Rebecca Bazina resigns as VP and MD of RGA Australia. So first, the topic everyone's been talking about around the globe this week, BuzzFeed's announcement that it'll be cutting 15% of jobs globally. Now, Zoe, there's been a lot of speculation. We're still not at the time of recording 100% sure exactly who has got the chop, but we do know that there will be some cuts locally. What's this really done to the local market here? Well, actually, I was talking about this just this week with some people who don't work in media about how the media loves to write about the media and every single publication in the whole of Australia and the world has been covering all of this these BuzzFeed cuts when obviously there have been cuts like this before, probably not at the scale as, uh, of this time around and at, and at various different digital publishers globally. I think HuffPost uh, was maybe a year and a half ago when they scaled back operations everywhere. So happened before what it means for local market what i think will happen is a change to the newsroom operations so for the people who don't read buzzfeed it tends to be divided into two categories and it seems that there's not much crossover between the people that read the the buzzfeed stuff that includes quizzes uh gifs or gifs or however everyone calls them um and and kind of fun how to things uh how to make etc etc they have brands like tasty in this market which is a food brand that kind of makes videos on how to create interesting things in really short periods of time which i've i've done myself and then the other side of it is obviously an editorial team which in this market and in other markets has won awards for their investigative journalism work. They've got a, a, an editor, a political editor down in Canberra, Alice Workman, that's picked up, I think, two press gallery awards in the last year alone for her efforts. So what you've got is a very fun uh, side of BuzzFeed that's kind of doesn't take any itself very seriously, creates lots of quizzes and ideas and 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 sort of articles that aren't really related to anything in particular and then you have this other side that has completely it's probably a bit more recent that's really created a very different uh voice in the Australian media landscape really definitive voice amongst journalists um and and what I think we'll see happen is that actually be scaled back I think when all of it came out some of the journalists that do work there said that BuzzFeed was told them that they were reducing their overall newsprint so what it looks like they're doing is actually moving back towards what they were first known for which are those quizzes gifs articles that are a bit more fun as opposed to the hard work that a lot of these journalists are put into now it has been weirdly quiet since 
the since I, I think Tuesday, which is when the Australian office came back to work after all the cuts in the US and the UK to find out their fate. We still don't probably know. I, the consul- consultation process will see 25 people, and there's about 40 in the Australian office at BuzzFeed, 25 people spoken to, 11 people to go. But I was actually talking to someone this week and we thought, knowing what that editorial team's like, if they don't ax all of them, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next six months there's a mass exodus mm. from that team just out of support for one another. What we've definitely seen is that they're all really backing each other. The BuzzFeed family, even the BuzzFeed family that has left BuzzFeed, is incredibly tight and supportive and I just don't see that team existing the way that it has irrespective of what happens in the coming days. And do you think it was a problem with the business model itself with BuzzFeed News? Do you think they just sort of brought it on, you know, spent quite a lot of money on it, but didn't actually figure out how to monetize that news side of the business because they don't have paywalls like a lot of other publishers do. And it feels like when they're not probably getting as quite as much traffic on those news articles as you would, sadly, from an article about cat, cat memes. Um, yeah, is it, was it just an issue of monetization or really what was the problem with BuzzFeed News? Because it was obviously such a great product. I think that the problem with BuzzFeed News isn't limited to BuzzFeed. It's not limited to any digital publisher. It's not limited to any publisher. The newspapers have had the exact same problem. I think it ultimately comes down to the fact that journalism, as we all know in this room, is costs a lot of money. It's a lot of resource. It's a lot of time. And, and in terms of investigative work, which there was a much bigger arm in the US, it's a lot of time for, I'm sure, a lot of dead ends as well. When you're creating that, and, and, and BuzzFeed obviously had built a model that was working, they probably thought they could keep going with what they had and, and the model that they had, and it will continue to fund that. But they've come into or fallen into the same sort of area that every single publisher, be it a newspaper or a modern publisher that evolved in the last sort of 10 years has, which is ultimately there's not enough money, a dependence on advertising or advertisers in any capacity, be it branded content, be it display advertising, whatever, is not enough to fund journalism. That's the bottom line. And what we've seen with the traditional publishers is obviously them putting up paywalls. And I remember two months ago writing a column for Week in Publishing where BuzzFeed had said it it was soft launching a membership program, which was essentially more like the Guardian model, where they would um, ask readers to donate some money. So they clearly could see that it was becoming a challenge for them, but I just think it was, um, and I did say this this week, but too little, too late. Mm-hmm. They had, they just didn't have the money that they probably needed. And you're going to have to cost, uh, cut costs. Every other publisher's done it in Australia. Every d- uh, publisher's done it globally. We've seen tabloid, we've seen papers get completely axed or moved from daily to weekly to m- magazines going to monthly or bi-monthly. Like it, it's just the nature of, of that job and what that is. And, and people are not used to paying for it online. And, and that probably hasn't changed as quickly as, as journalism needs. I think too, that's a bigger problem here for BuzzFeed. And as you say, Zoe, um, publishers in general, that uh, this, the basic advertising model just does not work um, on this. It really, Alan Kohler with uh, Business Spectator highlighted this, that uh, around about 2014, CPMs just went through the floor for digital mm. advertising for publishers. And that's meant that Online online publishers, it's just been very, very difficult to to make money out of these ventures. Definitely. And the, the other thing with um, with those advertisers is when reading a lot of books about what journalism was like way back when, it was a, it's a lot more expensive to have print ads than it is online. And the other thing to consider, which I often think about when I used to do the advertising agency round, is that the pressures that the publishers are under are not limited to publishing. Marketers have 
cut spend. The budgets are, cut, uh, are reducing everywhere. And it doesn't matter if, you know, you can prove the effectiveness of any medium. The reality is they've got X amount of money to spend and an agency or the client directly has to allocate that accordingly. And there's just not enough money to go around anymore. The days of huge marketing budgets are not there because the market is answering to boards that, and, and we've talked about this, I think, in our conferences a couple of times where maybe the board just looks at top line figures and doesn't really understand the the impact or effect of marketing and they're under those pressures as well. So when you have marketers under pressure and obviously agencies, don't get me started on agencies and their pressures, Abby's talked about it plenty of times before, but when you've got the entire industry struggling, obviously there's going to be consequences and I think this is just part of a massive picture. It's not surprising at all. It's horrible, but I just – it was going to happen to someone at some point down the line unless they re- rethought their model. And another thing with that, of course, is that uh, the big two gorillas in the digital advertising industry, Google and Facebook, are taking a bigger and bigger chunk of the spend. I mean, uh, the latest results from Facebook uh, that came out this morning, um, uh, their uh, revenues up 38%, mm. um, uh, ad volumes interestingly up 24.3%. But really another interesting fact that's jumped out of this is that um, – uh, revenue per advert, advert has gone down 2%. So that's oh. saying that even that's beginning to soften for Facebook and possibly for Google as well, that uh, just the sheer amount of um, inventory that's on those platforms is affecting them. The other thing, and Paul, you mentioned Facebook, BuzzFeed was one of many publishers that was dependent on that algorithm, mm. which we've probably not talked about in a while because it happened very early this time last year when, when ultimately Facebook said it would be prioritizing family and friends and, and the publishers that maybe got a lot of their audience from Facebook would not be prioritized. Now, at the time, BuzzFeed said it wasn't an issue for them, as did everyone else. But when you're that dependent on any platform, as much as if you're dependent on advertising for revenue, when people pull back at any point, you're at risk of your own model falling apart because you're dependent on all these other people to essentially hold you together. And I think that it's been floated around. There's so many different ideas that have been floated around with what ultimately went wrong. But that's also a challenge when you had a, a publisher uh, for a much younger audience that is on those social platforms all the time, obviously being impacted by those changes to some extent as well. I don't know. I think there's just so much that's coming to play here. Um, and I'm sure that we'll see when, what I'm looking forward to seeing is when BuzzFeed CEO Jonah Peretti actually talks more about what that new model looks like and what they're going to do instead. And I'm really hoping that for the journalists in the US and the UK and here, because there are some really talented people, that everyone else just picks them up because ultimately it's just a waste of, um, of talent. Now, speaking of changes in the digital publishing market this week, uh, Business Insider Editor-in-Chief Paul Kogan is leaving the business following the merger with Pedestrian, following the Nine and Fairfax merger. <laughs> lots um, of follows. Lots of mergers. Um, Paul, is this another sign of the times or was it just simply Paul's time to move on? Yeah, we discussed this uh, before Christmas, I think, on about uh, the whole uh, law being uh, merged into the Pedestrian Empire. And it's... It really seems that that business model, as I think Tim said at the time, uh, of syndicating the of syndicating international content, really that time has gone. Maybe that worked ten years ago, just like Cat Gifs did for uh, Faith, uh, for BuzzFeed rather uh, back then. But today, really, advertisers, marketers aren't going to spend that sort of money on on those platforms. I think in this instance, my view is probably different to Paul in that I. Paul Wallbank, that is, not Paul Colgan. I'm not sure what Paul Colgan's thoughts are. But I think, you know, when you have 
effectively most of Alua Media, uh, the, the the people who were in Alua Media leaving, it probably was just time for Paul to go and focus on something else, business inside in whatever capacity, as Pop Sugar is the same as well. And I don't think Gizmodo's or Lifehack is going to even exist mm. predominantly in this market anymore. But for those brands, there's going to be a lot of change anyway. Pedestrian, and we've spoken about this a lot, is a very, very different brand to anything else in market. And no matter who or no matter what um, Business Insider and Pop Sugar stood for, being sitting within the the, the group that is pedestrian, those those ideas are going to change and, and, and perhaps it's time for a changing of the guard there so that they can, you know, potentially create brands or, or better align those brands with, with the rest of pedestrian group um, or pedestrian TV rather. But what, what I have noticed with, with all of that merger is all those brands are incredibly different and and I'm sure the cultures were quite different. You know, mm. Alua Media was attached to the Fairfax uh, media business, and and it was quite. I, I, my understanding was it was much more traditional in its thinking. It obviously had a lot of challenges with U.S. licenses and negotiating with the U.S. and limitations. Whereas Pedestrian was started out by two really young guys that have worked their way up into this industry and sold it mm. sold it to Nine for a big thing. So it's very very different dynamic. And I'm I'm just thinking that probably Paul. Whether or not he thought it was he was right fit or not, probably sent. Hey, everyone else has gone. Perhaps it's time for me to try something new as well. He'd been there for six years. He did his time. He did a really good job of it, mm. um, and he's very well respected in the industry. So, I think in this case, probably different to to, to BuzzFeed and and what's been happening there. It's around about this time of year that the reality TV machine gets in full swing with Nine's Married at First Sight, Seven's My Kitchen Rules both launching this week. Um, Then we've also got Ten's Dancing with the Stars coming out relatively soon. So Zoe, in the battle between Married and My Kitchen Rules, do we have a winner yet? It's probably too early to tell. Probably too early to tell because things do change and in every year prior to this, Seven's My Kitchen Rules has premiered ahead of Married at First Sight, only to then be, especially last year, particularly be beaten by Married at First Sight later down the track. So, you know, anything can change. Probably the biggest change this year for both of them is the launch pads that they both went off. So, obviously, the sports rights change, and I did write about this in the last week, whereby tennis now sits with Channel 9 and cricket now sits with Channel 7. What that usually means is that the way that they market their reality shows, which kick off the year, is going to be different. So Seven, for the past nine years until this year, has been marketing to to a tennis audience, which is a lot broader, often female skewed, or that's that's what we've been told. This year, they've been marketing to a, to a more male skewed audience with the cricket. That's obviously going to attract different people. I mean, obviously, you're going to have the loyal viewers to come back year on year anyway, but that presents a new challenge for them. And then it's been the opposite for Channel 9, whereby they've got tennis now, which is a much broader audience to market to. I'd probably argue that Married at First Sight better fits with that tennis audience now, um, but I wouldn't say that it it really sat with um, the cricket at all. And and, and Seven perhaps might be better suited to the cricket. I know a lot of people that do watch MKR that are very different audiences to Married, but it's a very different challenge. So whether or not that's actually impacted what that launch and that premiere is like, there's probably a little bit of that. Other than that, I think Married at First Sight had a phenomenal season last season and people were excited to see what was coming. Mm-hmm. I think probably Seven, while they were anticipating, and, and I'm fairly confident that they were anticipating Married would beat them, I'm sure that at their 10th season they probably wanted to be a little bit closer at this early in the game. But 
as we've spoken about in the office and as I spoke about in my piece this week, the real person struggle or the real network, there's no person, but network struggling is actually 10 here. They obviously launched I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is their first big show of the year two weeks earlier. So they got ahead to be kind of the only entertainment offering in market, which really, really worked for them. But nine and seven predicted this. And, and what we've seen is they've definitely come off a bit since the two big shows have come on that everyone has a tendency to watch. They've done it, uh, Ten's done it a, a shorter season this year, so it actually ends in, I think, two weeks, which is when we'll see Dancing with the Stars. I think a lot of people are going to feel nostalgia with Dancing with the Stars, which is great. People seem to be slightly disappointed with some of the talent on the show, but what I think the real challenge for Ten is going to be is launching a program midway through two seasons of two very big and well-known shows. It could work because Dancing with the Stars is as I said, a familiar format. We've had it on air before, but I definitely think launching midway through when I'm sure if it if it goes anything like last year, nine and seven will be amping up the drama about about that point that ten's going to be having to compete in a very noisy market. But, you know, it's interesting. I remember growing up in primary school with Australian Idol and Dancing with the Stars as sort of, you know, two of my favourite shows. And I remember getting in trouble from mum and dad for voting too many times on Dancing with the Stars. You and me both. I know. And and I I sort of can't help but think, you know, that, that worked then when we didn't have social media and, and we weren't kind of using the internet to share our thoughts and and engage with each other around reality TV. But I don't know if a, if a model like Dancing with the Stars will work as well now. I mean, that was, you know, it was a real family show that we watched with, you know, mum and dad and, and, and my sisters. And, you know, that was before the time of Netflix, before the time of Stan, before the time of, as I've mentioned, you know, the internet. And I sort of, I don't see that show integrating into lives the same way that it used to. I agree. I think it's going to be very, very different for them because especially in the instance with Meriden and MKR, they're very well talked about. You can go through Twitter and everyone is talking mm. about them every single night. It doesn't matter how many nights of the week it is, both of them are being talked about. Whereas dancing, as you said, the most you talk about is at school when you would be like, mum wouldn't let me vote last night or dad mm. or, or at university or in your jobs. Like that was more of the conversation. What I would say though is good to see is that what we have at the beginning of the year still, even with I'm a Celebrity finishing, three very different shows. Married at First Sight is very different to My Kitchen Rules is very different to Dancing with the Stars. And I suspect the audiences that watch Married at First Sight probably don't watch MKR and also Neither of those audiences will probably watch Dancing with the Stars. I actually think even though 10 targets a younger audience, it might actually attract perhaps an older audience that used to watch a lot. Mm. Um, but I think that's probably a benefit. What you don't want is to have two kitchen or two cooking shows and two dating shows or anything like that. They've all got a point of difference. It's just whether or not people are going to interact. And finally, some sad news out of RGA Australia this week as its VP Managing Director Rebecca Bazina resigned from the company after five years. So, Abby, the agency is still relatively young at six years old and Rebecca has been there for the majority of that time. So... How do you see the future of the company without Rebecca at the helm? Yeah, look, it is quite interesting because, you know, she was really pivotal in that agency. She she joined it in 2013 as a client services director and she held that role for nearly two years and then 
became the managing director of client services and again held that role for about a year and she sort of took um, some time off from the agency and went and worked at Cummins and Partners as their managing director managing director and she stayed there for nine months and then returned back to RGA as its VP managing director and she's been there for two and a half years and you know, you speak to a lot of people in the industry and she's she's definitely um, very highly regarded and she's definitely done a good job. You know, at, at her time at RGA, they won clients like Wine Australia, Toyota and the NRL um, and they launched a consulting capability uh, and their other clients are Google, Telstra, Samsung. But RGA's it's quite an interesting one because they work more on a project basis with their clients so they're not – they don't have a lot of clients where they are the lead creative agency. They work on project bases with, with their clients. And, um, you know, I, I saw them um, at the live judging for the Mumbrella Awards where, where, you know, we take around a jury and see actually inside the agency. And, you know, to me, you know, with Bex at the helm, they felt they felt really strong and they felt like a very – new agency in terms of an agency of the future and you know when you look at the likes of CHE proximity who's also a very agency of the future type type agency and and RGA to me felt the same it just kind of felt that the only thing that was really missing was their their body of work they just didn't have the the creative real that that a lot of the agent the other agencies have and I think for me that's the one thing missing there but but Bex was you know, I think she she led a pretty a pretty tight ship, um, and she yeah she she's a great leader and very passionate. And I'll sort of be curious to see what she does next, as she sort of flagged that she's taking time out outside the advertising industry. Mm. But I have a feeling that's an outside inside the advertising Another industry one for our unemployed execs whiteboard. Yeah, I mean, I think you know she's she's still from what I've seen on LinkedIn and. And uh, what she said, she's she's still keen to kind of be in branding and, and mm-hmm. marketing and, and working with that. But you know, she's she's been working really hard, and and she's she's definitely been quite successful in that as well. And to get RGA sort of in the shortlisted creative agency of the year awards at Mumbrella Awards is not an easy feat. Uh, and they they definitely were very deserving of it. You know, I think a lot of people walked away from that feeling like they were very very determined and fresh and and you got a really really good vibe about their culture as well and they 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 are different they do there are a lot of agencies in this industry that you kind of can put next to each other and say you know they all do the same thing and they're all quite similar but I do think RGA does have its have its own space in the market and it certainly does fit between that consulting project work and ad agency and they kind of they do have their own little spot so whoever fills the role I mean I do think they do have a bit of a big job to get those um the the work there but I also think you know they'd they'd kind of be silly to change the positioning of the agency coming up next Zoe and I chat to Mamma Mia's Rachel Corbett about all things podcasts And joining us now is Rachel Corbett, head of podcast at Mamma Mia, the founder of Pod School and host of podcast You've Got to Start Somewhere. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks Hi. for joining us. Thanks for having right. me. Also here to my left is Zoe, Mumbrella's senior media reporter, who, among many things, covers the podcasting and publishing space. Hello. Now, Rachel, you've been a radio host, a scriptwriter, 
a voiceover artist, a commentator on Seven, a copywriter. Can you tell that I looked at your LinkedIn? Um, <laughs> I think it's fair to say that there's if there's a media job out there, you've done it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, so let's go back to the beginning. Uh, when you started your career in radio way back when, was, was podcasting even a thing people knew what it was? No. We started doing it sort of maybe, um, oh, God, I want to say maybe early 2000s uh, or sort of mid-2000s, I think, and it was just basically on radio, you know, it was like that replay catch-up stuff that I think radio was doing for a lot longer than it probably should have been. Um, I think, you know, the radio industry, there was a huge opportunity a lot earlier for them to get on the on the podcasting bandwagon. And I remember I was doing um, Drive at Triple M with Paul Murray and him and I, we had our, obviously our catch-up version of the podcast, of the radio show on podcast. And we sort of used to go in there and try and curate it a bit. Like if breaks didn't work, we'd cut it out. Um, we'd sort of change up the the order of things because we were trying to offer like something a bit different on podcast than we were necessarily on radio. And we were also aware of the fact that on podcast, you get the ability to edit things, right? And to go, well, that didn't work. That was crazy. On live radio, you're sort of saying something, it falls flat and you go, okay, we won't do that again, but people heard it. <laughs> so, you know, we were trying to to have a difference between that experience on air and on podcast. So, yeah, that was the sort of, that was what it was like in radio. Um, and then when I left radio, I got into podcasting because I was like, well, it's just radio, right? <laughs> and I don't, and I'm not working for anybody. And I, Paul and I hadn't worked together. And that was the first sort of independent podcast I did was Paul, Paul and I did our show again on podcast because it just was sort of, radio on the internet you know when when do you think it kind of the radio industry it sounds like you had kind of picked up that maybe you could do a little bit different do you think that audio as an industry picked up as quickly as you or did it take a little bit of time I was surprised I was doing independent podcasts I mean I'm not saying that I'm an industry leader because there were people that were doing it independently a lot longer a lot earlier than I was but I was just surprised considering that there were buildings with these state-of-the-art studios that you just give a nut to get into, you know, that they had just sitting there for the most time. And when I was doing radio shows, there'd be empty space in the studio for ages um, and that you couldn't be creating original podcast-only content in there to, to complement the stuff that you were you were doing on air. But, um, but you know, now they've, they've definitely gotten into the space in, in a big way for sure. Do you think it's almost to the point now where podcasts are almost overtaking the live radio aspect of things for these companies? Or do you think there's still just live radio is always going to have that edge because it's live? Yeah, I think I think it's just a it's just a good compliment, right? Because people still, I still listen to the radio when I'm in the car um, and people still listen to radio. I think there's a real space for that, the immediacy of it, the live nature of it, people ringing in and being a part of it. Like I think there's something really magic about that. So I, I feel like I don't know that podcasting is going to replace it and I feel like we've been saying for ages, oh, radio is going to die, <laughs> just, you know, but it just keeps going. Um, I, I think that podcasting has to be a part of what you offer as a radio station um, and you've got a great ability with a whole bunch of really solid performers with huge brands and a big bunch of studios and a network and, you know, all of the things are in place to be able to, to create a show and a podcast. Um, so I think it's got to be a part of the mix um, you know, as well as radio, if you're a radio station, for sure. It is interesting. You speak about like the talent, especially for me. I mean, we're obviously based in Sydney at Mumbrella, but if there is, if there are names and they've created brands through television and, and you know, they've got a show, 
that you maybe couldn't listen to if you weren't in Melbourne or Brisbane or Adelaide. Now you can actually do it. So it's obviously expanded it for live radio as well. They they kind of I think all the radio businesses position themselves as audio businesses now because yes. they've got a venture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, into every every space, obviously. And I think I actually wrote when you wrote up the story when you joined Mamma Mia. But Mamma Mia has been playing in that space for some time. Why do you think? And obviously you weren't there at the very beginning, but why do you think Mamma Mia as a brand saw that opportunity so quickly? I think Mia is pretty good at recognising when a wave's coming. She's got a bit of a sixth sense of this sort of thing. Yeah, she's good with the hunches. I think because she's quite, uh, she's like a real over-consumer of things. I, I'm always amazed. I'm like, how can you be on top of all those things? Like, where do you sleep? Do you have time? <laughs> she's always across a lot of stuff. So I think she's a good gauge in terms of what people are interested in because she's usually kind of involved in it. So she sort of sniffed the wind a bit and was like, I think that, you know, I'm listening to these podcasts a lot and I think that people will probably be interested. And so just gave it a bit of a crack. Now, in the early days, it was just, a you know, a crappy recorder on a desk in a big open cavernous room. Um, but, you know, they really got the edge in terms of getting ahead of the game so that by the time everybody started to get on the bandwagon and think, how can we get a podcast? We need a podcast. And brands thought, how can we do a podcast? How can we be involved in a podcast? They had a lot of historical knowledge in terms of what's worked, what hasn't worked. You know, they were in the process of improving the shows. So you, they were sort of perfectly placed to kind of pick up on the wave um, that eventually that eventually came along, you know. So obviously we've talked about how podcasting works for the radio industry, but obviously Mamma Mia is a publisher and I really have noticed over the past few years, especially some of the biggest podcasts to come out of Australia have been from publishers. I'm thinking specifically of The Teacher's Pet. It's probably going to get a mention at some point yes, during this interview. Um, so do, do you think this is almost like a future of journalism? This seems like there's a lot more people listening to those podcasts than perhaps would be reading a story about the same mm. the same story. Well, it's a natural progression, right? You've got a building full of people whose job it is to investigate interesting stories. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean to be need to be deep investigative journalism. That can just be a puff piece or a piece of, you know, an extension from a news story or a bit of pop culture stuff. So you've got a whole floor full of people who are involved in creating content every day. It's a natural thing for that a business like that to then move into audio um so i think it's and i think with the investigative journalism thing it's sort of interesting because people are obviously really into that stuff but man it takes a lot of investment in time and money and as an organization you've got to be able to say to somebody yes we'll pay you for a year to come up with that idea in the hopes that it's a hit at the end of it it's a huge you know it's a really huge risk um but i also think you know it, it's good at mamma mia there's sort of the mix of the online and also audio because some people like the audio element because they don't have time to necessarily read a lot or they want that in addition like if i, I listen to podcasts when i'm walking or if i'm going to the shops it's sort of a a, a multitasking experience mm-hmm. for me you know i try and get listening done in the hours that i'm doing something else so um for, it, it sort of becomes an extension to the content that's online, I think, and, and something that's um, a bit of kind of added entertainment. So we're not necessarily repeating what we do online. It's a, diff- it's a different kind of thing. I like diversification. Yes. Do you think that, and obviously everyone tries to diversify now, there's been businesses that have gone completely um, belly up in the attempt to diversify their content and revenue streams. Do you think every publisher can do podcasting? Obviously, a lot have tried. I think some of the magazines, I think, is it Take Five, might run their own one as well. And that's obviously very different again. Can everyone sort of find a place in that space? I think if you're 
if you're thinking a lot about quality control and you're coming at it from the point of view of the audience and you, you know, you try and make a really quality product, I think a lot of people get into podcasting thinking you just whack a couple of mics down, have a bit of a yarn and see how it rolls. <laughs> Isn't that what we do? Yeah, that's it. But, you know, it's very, yeah, and there are some podcasts out there that are two blokes sitting down waxing lyrical about nothing in particular that have managed to build an audience. More often than not, they're ones that got on the train really early. Mm. That's quite quite hard to gain success with a show like that now that there are so many shows out there. I think that you kind of had to be in here in there and get the sort of heritage subscribers. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of brands just think it's going to be too simple and they don't have the audio experience. They don't have the radio experience. And I think there's a lot that comes from, you know, how you think about radio that then translates into podcasting that makes for good podcast because basically it's an audio experience and you've got to get the hell on with your content do stuff that people want to listen to not be self-indulgent and you know yabber on for 45 minutes until you get to the point you know all of those basic things um and i'm not sure that people necessarily come at it with that in mind they just go well we just want a podcast and that's not enough of a reason to do a podcast not when there's thousands of podcasts to choose from no way does it feel like we're almost at the point now where the market's getting too oversaturated is there any way for brands to cut through and is is that all it is really just having great content i guess yeah through i mean it's be it's the tale as old as time right it's the same thing with blogs and the same thing happened it's like content is king that hot you know that (laughs) thing that we hear a million times over but you know you can still cut through with a solid idea but it has to be idea driven and i think brands in particular when they're thinking about podcasts they're they're sort of thought is how do I get how do we get our product out there how do we talk about our brand and there's that old school mentality of the more time we say our brand the more people are going to want to do it now that might be true if you're trying to attract people's attention because you're doing radio ads and they're doing you know the cleaning or they're in the office and you're trying to grab their attention but in podcasting like it has to come from the other way you have to think is there an idea that people are really screaming out for that people would be interested in or have I got a great you know is there a story that really needs to be told and then how can our brand associate ourselves with this in a way that makes sense. Like I think sometimes, at least from a, from brands who want to do their own podcast, sometimes the idea comes the other way around and it, and it doesn't necessarily work because it's got to come from the content. And and word of mouth is so powerful, or I think anyway, when I'm listening to podcasts, I, I we were talking about this before we started and I was going, I literally only will listen to one if someone tells me because mm. I can't. Go th- I'm not one of those people. I'm like that. Spotify hates me. I don't like curating my own stuff. I like to be told what to listen to, and 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 rely on 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 reputation and trust in a brand. Do you think that you know the brands that like uh, a Mamma Me who's known for their podcasts, or or a brand like the Australian Now with Teachers Pet? People are more inclined to go to the brands that they know can deliver on 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 various podcasts and, and and deliver interesting content yeah i think it's a mix i mean we certainly find that a lot of our listeners will listen across most of our shows so you know we'll obviously promote different shows that we have in the network across that network and we do find that there's a lot of uptake within that but i think it's i think it's also just a content-led thing because people are while they can love what one company does and and ingest a lot of their podcasts if you're into podcasts you're pretty agnostic. You're like, oh, it's great that these people that I love make six shows. I'll devour all those as well. But if there's one over here about a true crime story that I love and I've never heard of the people that make it but it's just a great story, I'll listen to that. You know, so I think – and word of mouth really does play a huge part because there's a lot of – there's still a lot of limitations to sharing 
uh, and growing podcast audiences and, you know, no simple things like the fact that there was no universal link so that you could Mm. share a podcast on an Android and not an iPhone with one click, you know, (laughs) certain things that have made it very difficult to really spread the word en masse. So the shows that have really hit in a big way have been the ones that have come into people's lounge rooms in a conversation kind of way, Mm. like have you heard about, have you heard about, Mm. and that's sort of how they – you know, that's sort of how they grow so big. Because it's almost something as simple as it's audio, so you can't really share it on social media very easily. Mm. Like even something as simple as that is, you know, like you can post a photo, but it's not really yeah, quite the same. Yeah, it's not the same thing. Like, wait, wait, have a listen to this. It just yeah. doesn't have the same effect. Yeah. Yeah. read it. <laughs> yeah, and there are little, you know, I mean, there are little things that you can do with audio cards to do snippets, but mm. you're sort of limited to a minute of audio and are people clicking and listening? Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, but it's not necessarily a, a uh, something that moves the needle massively so yeah it's 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 really it's really hard but it's also really hard to be the podcast that everybody's talking about yeah definitely we talked a lot about content and the kind of content you need but obviously and a challenge that when I've spoken to the radio guys in the past has been around monetizing these podcasts and where brands play in that has that changed over over time or in the time that you've been working on podcasts uh, I certainly think it's I mean, we notice almost every brand that comes to Mamma Mia wanting to spend with us, they want an audio element. They want podcasts in the mix. They will more often than not want that as the main part of the mix and then other things to support it. So I I certainly feel particularly recently like it started to really grow. I feel like when I started at Mamma Mia maybe a year and a half ago, I can't remember how long I've been there, but uh, there was still an education piece going out in the market. The salespeople were still having to go out and say, this is a podcast, <laughs> this is what it means. Now, for those of us who've been podcasting for a long time, you're like, really? How can there still be people I've that don't know? I've been listening to them since I was 14. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like- but there's a lot of people that still don't know what a podcast is. I feel like now – that's changed a lot. The brands are coming to us and going, we want to be part of podcasts. So there is a huge opportunity there now um, that maybe it felt like it wasn't there. We felt like we were still a bit ahead of the market a year and a bit ago. We were like, oh, we're still having to educate people. But now people are coming to us for that kind of stuff. And is it more, I guess, branded podcasts or are we doing, are you seeing more of live reads or how are the brands integrating into what, what you're creating? It's a mix. So people will come and ask us for branded podcasts. That's obviously a much more expensive partnership because you're developing something from the ground up. And yeah. more often than not, we've got an existing podcast that their brand would fit in or an existing idea that we might be able to partner with them rather than trying to create something that is just completely bespoke. And, you know, because we kind of know our audience, we know what they're going to like. We've got a bunch of ideas and things. So that's kind of how we tend to work with brands. It's either, hey, here are some of, this is what you want to achieve. These are some of the ideas that we've kind of got bubbling away in the mix already, or this is a new idea that we think might fit in quite well that we know would work for Mamma Mia and we can part partner you with on you with that or we've got a bunch of shows that are rolling out every single week that have an engaged loyal audience we do all our own live reads and our live reads aren't classic radio live reads that i remember doing which you basically like we've got to squeeze this into 30 seconds because we're recording it and dropping it into an ad break that's a certain amount of time you know we really flesh the content out and give it some room to breathe because i'm conscious of the fact that People don't want to be sold to, but they do want to be recommended to, you know, and they are very, um, they they have a very strong 
connection with our hosts. Um, so we want to make sure that that sounds like content. We're very clear that it's an ad. We don't want to lie to you about the fact that it's an ad, but you know, they, uh, they should be getting something from that as well as, as a listener, you should be getting content. So it's, it's a bit of a mix of all things. One thing I've noticed recently, I mean, I've been listening to my own podcasts is automated ads that are just automatically inserted and they're they're not related to the podcast in any way I'll be listening to a British podcast and there'll be an Aussie ad and I'm like what's going on this is really weird do you think that will ever really work because for me it kind of irritates me because I can just tell that it's not personal and I'll happily listen to an ad if it's read out by the host of a podcast I like but I don't necessarily enjoy listening to a random podcast that I know is not personalized. Yeah, and P- and your aim ultimately is that you don't want people to skip through the ads, right? So Which I might do. Sometimes. Yes, of course, of course. If you hear an ad and you're like, "This doesn't speak to me," or "I don't know who this person is," particularly if you're in the middle of a podcast and you've got somebody so intimately in your ears, and then some rando voice yeah. in a completely different accent starts yabbering on about something, <laughs> and you're like, "What? Where am I?" Yeah. Um, so we were very clear when the whole programmatic thing started about making sure that all of our ads were read by show talent um, or network talent, you know, people that voices that our audience would be familiar with uh, because there was some talk when programmatic came in and everybody was falling over themselves about this tech, which is awesome. You mm-hmm. know, it's amazing. But there was that idea of, oh, let's just shove radio ads in there, you know, and that was the kind of conversation about whether you just take radio ads, but radio ads in a, in the middle of a podcast when it's like an empty room with a few people talking for 45 minutes, you just think, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you, you know, Being loud and that. brashy, shouty ad comes in. I do think you have to think a lot about how that impacts your listeners because you have to play a long-term game. If you piss your listeners off and you don't continue to nurture that trust, then you can't really ask favors. Like they're not going to go to those brands because they're going to be irritated by them. But if you do have a trustworthy relationships uh, relationship with them and you think about those kind of things, I think they don't mind ads. Like you mm. said, you'll listen to an ad and I do the same. Some of the podcasts, like one of the podcasts I listen to, Pod Save America from the mm. States, I listen to their ads because they're funny and I'm thinking I'm actually wanting to know what they what they are talking about but I'm listening through that. So, yeah, I think using just shoving any old ad in just because you can because we've got the tech to do it now isn't necessarily the right way to go. One of my favourites is Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye. I don't oh, know if you yes, know him. He yes. has a podcast and his ads are just so great they're just hilarious yeah and they can be content right like they they don't yeah they don't have to be something where you think oh here we go we've got to talk about something and I did feel it you know because you've got so little space in radio sometimes when we used to do those it did feel a wee bit like that but you know you have to you have to read them too you have to be sitting there for 45 seconds or 30 seconds doing it so why not make it something that you want to actually talk about yeah I heard a live read for KO um I think yesterday in the car and I thought oh, you really don't sound like you're interested in KO. Yes. (laughs) You really don't. You're not really selling it to me. You you sound like this is the most boring thing in the world for you. And, I mean, it's great. It's actually a great uh, website. The streaming service has been welcomed by a lot of different people, but – I'm not going to buy it if you're going to speak to me like that because it just sounds like you, you couldn't stand the fact that you've got to do it for the third time this morning. Totally. And there's a, and there's an interesting relationship I always found with sales um, and content in radio. 
it was almost like, oh, this is frustrating. When in reality, it's like if nobody's paying for your ads, you don't get to do any of the fun stuff that you love doing. So there needs to be a bit of suck it up and get it done Mm. and enjoy it and try and make the most of it because otherwise you just don't have a job. And I feel like because podcasting is sort of still in in its infancy in some ways and people are have been trying to work out how to monetize it for so long and now we're getting into the stage where brands are kind of interested people are so happy to sort of be like yes you want to get involved in our podcast (laughs) that we're really thinking about ways to be more creative about the creative and that's really working so I I do think that that's sort of important because if you're bored how do you expect a listener to not be bored you know exactly now I think we're almost out of time but I've just got one more question yes I think you knew it was coming oh here we go what are your podcast favorites at the moment oh this is a bit where I go, all of the Mamma Mia podcasts. <laughs> Actually, we do have one that I'm really excited about that's coming up that I've been listening to ad nauseum because I've been editing and stuff. It's uh, it's the baby bubble. Um, and it's uh, a, Zoe Marshall and Sean Zepps who are just a really good combo. Oh, I saw them at Zoe promoting it yeah, today, actually. Yeah, they're just so funny together. Um, so, yeah, it's I've been really enjoying listening to that. I listened to a great – I've sort of gotten to the stage where now I can't devour – whole shows anymore because there's like 700,000 shows. So I like to find good episodes or good little series Mm. within podcasts. Um, I recently listened to the Origins podcast that talks about like the origins of certain things like ESPN. They did a Mm. series on Sex and the City. I was a huge Sex and the City fan. Sounds good. I want to listen to that. Yeah, it's a three-part series and they talk to all the old cast, like the executive producer, the writer, everybody comes back for this except for Kim Cattrall. She wasn't. She was notably absent. Um, but it was yeah, it was really really great and dipping back into that uh, show that I uh, that I used to love and I'm a, I'm a, just a bandit for any kind of doco you know yeah. so yeah. yeah that that's a big recommendation for me. Okay, cool. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And if our chat with Rachel has opened your ears to the world of audio, we definitely recommend you head over to mumbrella.com.au slash audioland for details on a new Mumbrella event on May the 2nd called, you guessed it, Audioland. If you're thinking of starting a podcast or want to learn more about the audio space, this is a great opportunity to hear from some big names in the space like SCA's Podcast One, Amazon Alexa, Nova Entertainment, Vice, ABC's Audio Studios and more coming through next week. You'll want to check out Mumbrella's events page or go to mumbrella.com.au slash audioland for the details. That's all from us this week. Thanks everyone. Thanks, Thanks, Jess.